This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm delighted to be here to moderate this panel. We have three wonderful, uh, engaging speakers um, and discussants for this panel. So we'll have uh, short presentations and then we'll open it up to discussion and hope for a very animated discussion. Um, our first speaker will be Jeff Remmel. Um, he's the Associate Dean of the Division of Physical Sciences at UC San Diego here, as well as a Distinguished Professor of Mathematics and an Adjunct Professor of Computer Science and the Rady School of Management. He heads the CalTeach program here at UC San Diego. So um, thank you all for coming. Uh, normally what we uh, tell our students in mathematics is that every talk should have a short proof in the last part of the talk you should really wow the audience with the most advanced stuff you have fortunately they only gave me ten minutes so we're going to skip both of those things and I'm sure you'll be happy about those um, what I'm here to talk about briefly is some of the some of the things that we've done to try to um, get contributions to diversity up front in terms of the hiring process so we basically have sort of four things that, we, that we've done. Um, and I would say all of these are a kind of experiment because we, they keep evolving. We keep trying to do different things. Um, but the first one is what the chancellor talked about is that for all new positions, they have to, every candidate has to submit a separate statement uh, about their past experience in leadership and equity, diversity, and inclusion. Now, um, you know, when we first started this, this was a difficult thing to do because people didn't know what to write. Uh, the faculty didn't know how to evaluate it. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about how that, that process has evolved. Uh, we've tried a, a number of strategies in terms of trying to um, encourage uh, positions where, where you could get extra positions or positions where we, if somebody came up with a candidate who had this outstanding track record that we were looking for, that we could do that. So in 2011-12, the executive vice chancellor said seven, but actually there turned out to be more that he actually funded in this particular way, uh, where uh, we in the divisions or the departments could put up candidates who they thought were an outstanding opportunity. And it certainly worked for the Division of Physical Sciences because we got an outstanding candidate that year. Um, last couple of years, the the vice chancellor has told the departments and the divisions that um, we want 30% of the positions to be earmarked as ones where uh, contributions of diversity are, are something that you take as a primary consideration. Now that, I would say, hasn't worked as well in our division, um, partly because we had a three-year plan already in place, uh, but nevertheless, Every department has to, you know, we in the division, for example, tell the departments, you have to come back to us and say, here's, you have two positions this year or three positions this year. You've got to designate one in that direction. Um, the other thing that I'm going to talk mostly about today is that uh, a bunch of the divisions have had sort of open positions di division-wide uh, for um, where uh, contributions to diversity were primary considerations. Okay, um, And these positions have been done in engineering scripts and the Division of Physical Sciences, being typical people we copied from engineering <laughs> and scripts copied from engineering, but that's okay. Um, this was 
started by Gene Ferrante and, and the dean of the engineering at the time, Frieder Seibel, and it worked for them. And, and last year, we had two positions that we set aside for this. They were open across the whole division. We had a, a committee that consisted of two people uh, from each department plus myself that was on the committee trying to make these decisions. So let me just uh, put up parts of ads here so that you can see um, what we have here. So in every ad, so this is a standard ad for an astrophysics, uh, you see in yellow the successful candidate will judge on research, teaching accomplished, as well as potential leadership in areas of contribution to diversity, equity, inclusion. So this is now in every ad for every position, right? And uh, in addition, you see down at the bottom there that there's a separate statement on past experience in leadership and equity, diversity, and inclusion that's required of everybody. Okay, so this, every standard ad goes out with this sort of language. You know, there's more stuff about, I didn't put in the whole language of the ads, but this, this is in every uh, ad that goes out. Language may be, um, vary from division to division, but this is basically the sort of thing that goes out. Uh, for these excellence positions, this is the ad, this is our current ad that came out in chemistry and uh, biochemistry department. So we have three departments in division, mathematics, physics, and chemistry, biochemistry. Uh, each one put out a separate ad for this position. But this is an open position across all fields of uh, uh, chemistry in this particular case. And you see the kind of extra statement that's there. Pervert candidates will have potential leadership in areas contributing to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and will have a desire to play a future role in helping shape and expand the university's diversity issue, initiatives. Um, you know, when you do this, of course, you know, the first thing uh, that faculty will come back to you and say, well, if you have these open positions, do these positions have to be women? Do they have to be underrepresented minorities? And the answer is no. First of all, it's illegal. Second of all, it's, it's not what we want. I mean, we want, we have a diverse faculty in terms of interests and their abilities, and it's perfectly okay if an underrepresented minority wants to come and do his or her thing in research and not deal with this issue. They're not ideal candidates for this position, whereas, you know, an old white guy like myself, you probably wouldn't hire, but a young white guy, you might say if he already has an outstanding track record doing that sort of stuff, that's the kind of person we want. Now, you know, does it help if you have both? The answer is, of course, yes, right? But this really is, we, you know, we want this open and this has to be serious in terms of their uh, ability to contribute to diversity. Now, this is difficult because these are junior positions, so one has to be a bit careful with this in terms of how much do you require when. Right, because people have to go get tenure and they have to do their research and get set up and all that sort of stuff. And that's an issue that we're still dealing with. Uh, when we first started this, um, the diversity statements, nobody knew quite what to do. Lots of faculty came to us and said, how do I evaluate these diversity statements? <clears throat> if we ranked them on a level of one to five, people felt like, oh, my candidate had to be ranked five just to be able to be hired. Well, that's not the case. Um, and what we learned when we started this process, we didn't start this at the start, that people from the outside, since we were one of the few institutions to do this sort of thing, didn't know what to write. So eventually, uh, Gene Ferrandi uh, put up a website, which this is a flash of, uh, and <coughs> you, can, you can look uh, and at the, 
you can find this at the website of the faculty equity advisors at and the uh, Linda Green's office um, that giving examples of this sort of thing. So you can click on this sort of thing and get some things about statements and all this sort of stuff. This was an enormous help, an enormous, um, uh, the, the kinds of statements that we got got better and more focused and uh, I think it also helped faculty understand what it was about. Now in our division, uh, when we first started, as I said, you know, people didn't know what to rate uh, these uh, statements as. And there were, uh, you know, some statements that came to our office which were, you know, sort of patently absurd to get a five, right? I believe it's important that, you know, we have women and minorities. End of statement. Okay, fine. That's, that's not contributions to diversity. So what we try to do, and this came... Um, from a professor in chemistry, Alex Hoffman, who's, who developed this and then we refined it and we're actually going to use something like this in, in, the, in the clicker examples that follow. But basically we tried to get a scale to help people sort of organize their thoughts and talk about the various things. So you got your five point total, you, you wanted a statement awareness, that was zero to one point. Track record, right, track record was uh, a thing of uh, what have you done, two points, and plans was another point. Has this worked? Well, the answer is yes. Um, the, we have gotten some increase as, as the uh, figures that um, were talked about before. These uh, are some of the increases that have happened since. I'm going to uh, quickly go through these. The Hispanic and tenure track have gone up. All these things have gone up since 2009, 2010 when we started this process. Um, this looks great for American Indians, but one to three is not exactly what you want. Um, so there has been some, some uh, things that have worked. Let me briefly, um, in the last couple of minutes here, just talk about some of the issues that you have to do, which is faculty buy-in. You know, we all here are, are sort of understand the issues, but you know, this is something that you still have to work on. You're going to get a lot of arguments. You know, what happens if I have an underrepresented minority proof somebody who's really excellent? Well, we found in our excellence pools that wasn't the issue. We had absolutely first-rate candidates who were as good as any that we saw across the other hires. Um, how can we guarantee a successful pool? What we wanted was people to go out and actually search for these people, be active, right? Um, you have to worry, are, are, the, are the candidates themselves going to be labeled, right? What do you do about candidates from regular searches, the second candidate in organic chemistry, right? Maybe, are, are they going to try to game the system and say you have two people? Timing is a big issue. So in our division, mathematics finishes its hiring season by February. Physics typically ends in June, right? So we have to worry about timing. This is, this is a, a, a big issue. How do you deal with uh, candidates from different fields where this system-wide committee has a very tough job trying to figure this sort of thing out uh, if you only have a limited number of positions? The last thing I'll say is that what we found is there's an enormous number of two-body problems in these excellence positions, and this is something that you really have to deal with. Thank you, Jeff. Our next speaker is Olivia Grevy. Um, 
She's Associate Professor of Material Science and Engineering at UC San Diego here, with a research focus on nanostructured materials. She's active in the recruitment and retention of women and Hispanic students in science and engineering, um, leading several prestigious awards, including Hispanic Educator of the Year. Well, first of all, um, I really want to thank the organizers for the invitation. I, I really am very honored to be here speaking with you about uh, some of the things that I've been doing to promote the hiring of Hispanics uh, in the field of engineering in particular. So that really is my passion. And um, I want to tell you a little bit of my background so that you can maybe understand sort of the context of how I got into this business of doing this. And so I, I was born and raised in Tijuana, right across the border. So I am a border resident, Tijuana, San Diego. I sort of, um, for those of you that are not border residents, I mean, to me, it really is one city, and there happens to be a border in the middle. Um, and I did cross the border every day, almost, when I was young, to do different things here on, in the San Diego side, just to buy milk, for example. Um, and then, of course, I came, uh, you know, as I got older, other things started happening in terms of the connectivity between the two cities. And, and one of those is, uh, ended up being that I, I did come to UCSD for undergrad. So this is my alma mater. And I, um, I finished in 1995 in structural engineering. I felt very good uh, about my experiences at UCSD. And, in fact, I felt excellent about my experiences at UCSD as an undergraduate. And I, I started thinking about that. Uh, as I got older and I went to uh, UC Davis for my PhD, that's where I ended up getting the PhD in materials. And uh, I thought about it, and it has to do with the fact that I, I felt very a part of the community at UCSD. And the reason I felt part of the community is because we used to have a minority engineering program. And so I really was a part of the MEP program. We have something that is uh, diff slightly different, but the same kind of concept, because the, the MEP program sort of as, as an MEP program disappeared for a while, and then it came back. And um, when I graduated from UCSD in 95, I had all my friends were Latino engineers, all of them. And now I think about that, I was like, you know, that probably was not a good thing. It felt me, it felt, you know, it felt very good. I felt very included. It was like my community. Then I, I was like, well, yes, but then what about making other friends? So that could have been a little better. That was sort of a choice I made just because I was an MEP. Uh, when I went to UC Davis, then, of course, the issue of lack of Hispanics in engineering is when it started getting really obvious to me. Because here at UCSD, it wasn't. I was with my little group of friends, all the Latino structural engineers. We were team, you know, we studied together, we solved problems together, we just, it was just my little group. In graduate school is when I started noticing, because of course now I joined a research group and there was a variety of people and practically no Hispanics. And so I started getting involved with the Society of Hispanic Professional Engineers in order to, to figure out what, what was the problem here. And it has grown to a, a program that is, that is very large. Um, at the national level, it includes many, many components that have to do with the promotion of graduate education and the professoriate among Hispanics in engineering. And most, most of the activities are run through the Society of Hispanic Professional Engineers, but not all of them. Uh, most are, though. I was one of the excellence diversity hires here at UCSD last year. I started uh, last November, so it's now almost one year. And in between uh, that, you know, 95 UCSD, and then I finished the PhD in 2000 in Davis, 
My faculty, my first faculty position was actually at the University of Nevada, Reno. Um, and that had to do with uh, personal, not wanting to leave the region uh, too far away because I was married at that time and my husband was in San Jose. And I just didn't want to leave, be too far. Uh, but then I got divorced. <laughs> and I was like, well, now I can do whatever I want. <laughs> And I, that's when I moved to Alfred, and I'd like to um, correct what Pradeep said. Alfred is a research institution, uh, and, uh, but it is a very small research institution which is very well known in the area of ceramics and glass materials. And my area is ceramics, so Alfred University was like the place to go. And I was there for just uh, a few years. And, uh, and then I got a phone call from UCSD. A lot of my old professors from here remembered me. And they knew, they sort of followed what I had been doing, and, and so they thought, okay, she would be perfect for this, for this kind of position. I am now in the Excellence Diversity uh, Committee for the, new, for the hire that we're going to have this year. And when I was uh, going through the process, uh, I was asked to talk about that, it was was actually a very good experience again for me. It was, UCSD has always just sort of you know, done well for me. It has worked for me. Uh, it, it was just a very pleasant experience. It, was, it, it seemed to be that everybody was very supportive. Uh, now, you know, I come here and then I find out that there's all kinds of internal issues. And so one of the issues that I see with the excellence diversity hires is that because it's a dean position, and one of the each department is allowed to put forth one candidate only. And then out of those, and there's six departments in the School of Engineering. So there's going to be six, six candidates. And so this is like a free position, new position that was not expected in the department. And so that means that every chair of every department, every representative for each department is really going to pull for their candidate. And uh, so it becomes sort of contentious to, to make sure that the really the, the, the most highly qualified, I suppose, but it gets hired. The problem is, of course, that all of these six candidates are in, in different fields that are very, very different, right, because it's different departments. Uh, so how can you compare a materials engineer like myself to somebody in computer science? Well, then you start looking at age indexes and you start looking at numbers of publications, but there's issues because... Age indexes for people in different fields are very different. Biologists have very high numbers. Engineers maybe a little lower. It's just too much uh, of this non-comparable numbers that you have to start looking at. And um, in my case, you know, all of the science and all of that is there. You, you can't hire somebody at UCSD without that component. Uh, but uh, the diversity aspects of it were really... Uh, they were outstanding, and, and I am just telling you about that because I do feel like my, the programs we've been running are outstanding. So um, in looking at diversity in the STEM fields, the numbers are getting better, and so that is just sort of the latest statistics that go not to, you know, we're, we're, it only goes up to uh, 2008. There's, there's better ones. I just didn't have the time to find them for you and put them in here. But things are getting better. Percentages are increasing in almost all the, uh, all the ethnic groups. Uh, but this is the one that I really want to show you. Uh, one of the things that we started doing in promotion of graduate education and the professoriate is to start looking at who are the Latino engineering professors in the country. And so um, this is 
the statistics that I have gathered, and I have basically at this point in my computer um, all of the Latino engineering professors in the country, all of them. And so there are approximately 300 of us. And as you can see in this pie chart, I have them divided by region from where they, in terms of where they came from. And so 22% of them are from Mexico. And, uh, you know, you can see some other numbers. Argentina is high, 13%. Um, what is really shocking to me, and a couple of you in the room have actually seen this pie chart before, is that 90% of the Latino engineering professors in this country come from abroad. And only 10% were born and raised Latinos in this country. So if it's about 300 of them, uh, that, that number down here is slightly outdated. This, this is not the latest data. It's, they, it increased by a few numbers, a few because there was new hires this fall. And so uh, this thing is slightly modified at this point. But the number basically stays the same, 10%, so around 300. So that means 30 in the whole country were born and raised in the U.S., which tells me that we're doing nothing Toward, you know, with the Hispanic community in terms of taking our young people, taking them through high school, college, getting them into graduate school, and then actually getting them into academic positions. And that is the, uh, the point of this slide. Now, the numbers of Latino engineering professors are going to continue increasing. I have no doubt of that. And I also have no doubt that most of them are going to be immigrants. And so from Mexico and from Argentina and, and uh, let's see, uh, Brazil, Brazil should be in here. Uh, yes, it's 6% right now, and I'm sure that number is going to be, in terms of percentage, why it's going to be uh, higher soon. Um, you will notice that Puerto Rico is 7%, and Puerto Rico is the U.S., right? They are U.S. citizens, so how, how is that there? Um, I actually do count Puerto Rico se like a separate country, and so that 7% is Puerto Ricans that were born and raised in Puerto Rico, and that came to the United States that are now academics in the, in the you know, sort of the continental U.S. Uh, and if I counted the numbers of Latino engineering professors in Puerto Rico at University of Puerto Rico, Mayagüez, or, or Rio Piedras, or some of the other outstanding institutions that they have down there, the numbers here would be hugely skewed. Just Mayagüez has close to 100 faculty members, and they're all Latino. I think there's two Indians and you know, a couple of white people in the faculty, and that's that. So if I add to this 300, 100 from Puerto Rico, then you start looking at them, and I was like, oh, we're not doing so badly. <laughs> they're all Puerto Rico. That's, that's the thing. Um, so that 7% is, that, that is how, it's, how I represented that. Um, I, I have only about 30 individuals, most of them from abroad, you know, born and raised in other countries, because now you know the statistics related to that. Only about 30 individuals that have positions of uh, administrative, high up administrative positions, and you know, a few of them at the very top are, are very well known. Um, Rafael is the provost of Georgia Tech. Rafael Bras and Rafael Reif is Venezuelan. He's the president of MIT. Uh, you can see the ones in red, which are the, the women. And so I wanted to highlight them because now you're looking at some really small, small numbers. 
Uh, Monica Olvera is, uh, is a professor at Northwestern, and she, she just got NAS membership last year. Christine is at MIT, Christine Ortiz. Diana's right now at N Diana Farkas is, is at NSF. She's professor at Anyway, I could go through some of these um, uh, statistics here. And Oscar Dubon should be in here. Oscar is here. He's at Berkeley. He's now associate dean, so he should be in this list now. And I am done. Here's the ongoing discussion. If you hire Hispanic faculty in engineering or any other field, um, you are assuming that they're going to be role models that are going to uh, be the ones that are going to sort of promote. And I actually am a, a very strong believer in that. Uh, sometimes, however, and in many cases, what the Latino engineering professors, not the ones on my statistics, if you start now looking at uh, tenure and tenure track versus lecturers, the numbers of lecturers are much, much higher. So you have a lot of lecturers in what I would consider positions of no power. And so the message there is, and this is one of the hypotheses that we're following right now, the message there is, if you have a lot of, uh, of Latino professors that are more in lecturer positions as opposed to tenure, tenure track, or administrative positions, what is the message there? Uh, and so I'm, I'm worried about that. That's like sort of personal worry for me. Like, what do you do with this, this unintended message of the Latino faculty are not important, are not part of the decision-making process? So we're working on that. And that's it. Thank you. That was uh, amazing data. All right, our, our final speaker in this panel is Amy Wharton who is Director of College and Arts and Sciences at Washington State University, Vancouver, where she is also Professor of Sociology. She's a co-PI on the Washington State at NSF Advance Award and coordinates advanced social science research at her university. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for inviting me to speak today about my university's uh, use of diversity contributions in faculty hiring. Um, we've made some changes at WSU, but I want to say up front, um, I'm here to learn as much as to inform because we have a long way to go. I see myself as a partner in this effort, not an exemplar. In fact, I've already learned a few things this morning. Um, it's only 10.30, and I've learned um, quite a few things that I can take back to my university. Uh, to provide some context, uh, my vantage point on this issue is sort of a multifaceted one. Um, it's partly shaped by my own disciplinary expertise in sociology and specifically in my background in organizations and gender inequality. And if there's one thing that that research has taught us, it's that being fair in hiring or in other areas is not just a matter of intent. Um, it's really a matter of organizational practices. Um, those practices matter a lot. We heard earlier today about, about bias, and I think, I don't know if we can ever eliminate bias, but we can put practices in place that mitigate its effects. My perspective is also shaped by my five-year involvement in Washington State University's NSF Advance Grant. Um, and that taught me, if anything, that studying organizations, which I already always thought was hard enough, um, is the easy part. And making change in organizations is very hard work, uh, universities in particular. Um, and that's especially the case when you're trying to make change where it counts, at hiring and promotion. These are the areas historically controlled by faculty, as it should be. Um, and as Michelle Lamont reminds us in her book, How Professors Think, um, faculty are the guardians at the gate of excellence. 
Um, and asking people to slow down, and I do think slowing down is very important, to rethink how they should evaluate people's potential for excellence, whether it's in hiring or demonstrating their potential, um, uh, demonstrating their, their excellence at promotion is really hard. Um, at the same time, as a result of efforts like Advance, like PAID, um, and many other groups, I think we're in a really great position now because there are strong networks of practice and expertise in place really across the country that can help us um, disseminate knowledge, report on what's been effective, and inspire innovations. Along with these influences, my perspective on diversity issues in faculty hiring has been shaped by my role as a faculty um, in the trenches, I guess, um, and also in recent years as an administrator. So in the last couple years, it's given me a chance to participate in and observe how some of the changes we've made are playing out on the ground, or not playing out, I guess, as the case may be. So with that, let me just give you a bit of background at WSU. Some of the changes we've made, um, some of those changes are, are going to be familiar because you've made them as well, and then talk a little bit about what those changes might mean. Um, first of all, just the context, um, w, uh, Washington, like California, has in place an anti-affirmative action statute that was passed in 1998, which has um, affected what we can and can't do in the hiring arena. Um, while California and Washington are, are like in that respect, um, our demographics differ. Um, Washington is about 71% white, non-Hispanic, um, though like most other states, uh, about half of the population under the age of one are minorities. At WSU, about uh, two-thirds of all tenure-line faculty are white, and that proportion is about the same as the student body. I think actually the percentage of faculty at WSU who are white is actually a little bit higher because there are, there's about 10 percent of faculty who did not identify their race or ethnicity. The university has long had a commitment to faculty diversity in its strategic plans, and I don't doubt the sincerity of that commitment. However, for reasons that I think are in many ways organizational, diversity efforts with respect to faculty were somewhat marginalized within the institution. Um, and one of the reasons for that is that responsibility for diversity efforts was located outside the academic side of the house and instead part of the university's human resource area called various things over, over the years, Office of Equal Opportunity, Center for Human Rights, and so on. Meanwhile, the people responsible for recruiting, searching, hiring, promoting, and making personnel decisions in the university were the faculty and other academic administrators. That kind of separation is not that unusual in higher education. However, we know that it creates a situation where the key players with respect to faculty hiring and advancement operated pretty much in isolation from those charged with diversity efforts and providing diversity expertise. And certainly this is one of the lessons learned from advanced institutions is that this is not the way you go about diversifying your faculty. Faculty. Um, the search process, as we know, is really where the action is, and this process is where the intervention needs to happen. Um, in the past couple years, uh, the faculty search process at Washington State has been slowly revamped. I say slowly. Um, I'm somebody who's a fan of small wins, um, and I take some of our changes as um, some, one of those small wins because it started to change the mindset of faculty a little bit. The changes have been unevenly implemented, still very much a work in progress. See, I'm having, I have these qualifications. <laughs> um, and when we made changes, we certainly didn't reinvent the wheel, but we did draw on the many excellent materials available on best practices for diversifying the faculty. And that's, as I said, one of the great things that has happened in the last uh, 10 years or so as Advance has been around is that we know so much more about how to do it. So what did we do? Well, we did some things similar to what you did. We created uh, senior diversity liaisons. I think these are people who are similar to your equity advisors. Um, these are 
Ostensibly, I just looked the other day, they're not all um, full professors, but they're supposed to be full professors, full tenured faculty um, within each college in the university um, who have a role in ensuring that uh, searches are conducted fairly and inclusive search practices are followed. Um, the creation of these roles has been a really important first step in bringing diversity, expertise, and advocacy back into the academic side of the house, thus breaking down the segregation that had existed previously. Um, it's harder to sort of dismiss a colleague than, to, than the person who, you know, from outside who shows up at your first meeting. Um, our human resources group is still extremely important um, in terms of providing expertise, as they always did, but they function more um, in a support role as a... As a uh, to the search committees. We've tried very hard to change the search committee and the search committee process. Um, we've tried to make our search committees um, more self-conscious, more thoughtful um, in their roles, to make them more accountable in some respects. Um, our searches used to be run um, in such a way where the search committee was sort of, they were important. They did the first kind of pass of applications. They came up with a short list, but really then it went all the way back to the, the, the full department. And the problem with that is you can educate a search committee a lot, but if really at the end everything goes back to the department, you're, you're not really making much change. So we've tried to, to shift the center of gravity to the search committee given them a crash course in organizational practices to avoid un unconscious bias, um, and really have tried to use our liaisons to, to help in that, that role. The other thing that we've done, um, and we're doing this a little bit unevenly, we haven't done it across the board, but to try to add some diversity qualifications. Um, in our position descriptions, we always have to have required qualifications and preferred qualifications, very standardized, and we put diversity qualifications in the required. Um, the rationale for doing this is similar to what we've already talked about, I'm sure, um, to try to diversify the applicant pool um, and increase the likelihood that a candidate from an underrepresented group will be hired, but also to enhance the likelihood that all new hires are committed to advancing diversity and can contribute to these efforts. So this represents a, an important change away from including diversity language only at the end of the job announcement. Um, there are many ways to incorporate diversity qualifications into a notice of vacancy, and there's lots of good examples in, in your handouts and good examples that Jeff has um, already provided, but it's really important that search committees think about which ones are relevant to the duties and responsibilities of the position. And that's something we've tried to help search committees with, is to try to figure out what matters for this particular position. Um, another important factor here is to have a really clear criteria for ranking, and I think Jeff um, echoed this as well. You can't just tell people that they have to, you know, diversity is important and then not really help them formulate how it's going to be evaluated, what are the criteria that are going to be, going to be used. Um, search committees have to identify clear criteria for evaluating these qualifications, just as they have to <clears throat> identify clear criteria for ranking candidates in terms of research productivity potential, uh, or potential teaching and so on. Certainly adding diversity qualifications um, is not a new idea. It was interesting because even at uh, WSU, it had long been advocated by our diversity experts within human resources, but nobody really paid much attention to it for, for a long time. Um, but now we've been able to, to um, insert these qualifications. Um, some of the examples that we've used in recent searches, these are in, in recent or current searches in statistics, psychology, environmental science, um, 
ability to serve underrepresented groups, contribute to uh, WSU's diversity goals, demonstrated ability to contribute to campus diversity um, efforts. We've used that on our campus a lot. Ability to mentor or to um, conduct research. So um, here's an evaluation of um, how these qualifications were um, are evaluated. Uh, this is a demonstrated ability to contribute to campus diversity um, efforts using diversity-related teaching research, stated intention, um, and our, we evaluated them simply by whether it's addressed, people who just said, I've always been committed to diversity and I will continue to be so, and people who gave very detailed, rich examples. Okay, just some final thoughts. Um, <clears throat> you know, we, I want to flip the discussion for a second and look at the application requirement from the perspective of job candidates. You know, we think about, we've been thinking, we talk a lot about finding um, about uh, a diversity qualification from the perspective of a job application. And it does, of course, as we know, disrupt the normal way of doing things for faculty search committees, but it's also disruptive for job applicants. Um, we all have our standard you know, language in place for searching, but job candidates also have templates they follow, you know, how to write a cover letter, how to construct their CV. Um, and for many prospective faculty, the idea that advancing diversity is their re responsibility is not always a part, a part of the message they receive in grad school. So it really behooves us to think about that as we prepare these job candidates who are applying for each other's position. Um, one of the things that we found is that some prospective faculty ignored this requirement when it was in our, in our ads. Um, and so in one case, I know a, a search committee chair went to a, you know, people and said, did you realize there was a, there's another required part of this? Would you like to address it? Um, they just ignored it. Um, and I think asking job candidates for this kind of information, you know, it challenges their own sense of what counts um, in a search or as a qualification for a faculty position. So we have to prepare our students better. Um, another thing that's interesting is what prospective faculty say when they do respond to this requirement. Um, I have some colleagues that are um, doing a, a study of searches and looking at, I mean, they're, they're basically coding the equivalent of what you call your diversity statements, looking at how prospective faculty address this question. And um, they did a pilot study by looking at a search for a diversity-related position. This is a diversity faculty fellow position, so this is not quite the same as a, as a regular faculty position. But one of the things they addressed was the way that applicants define diversity, or what characteristics they invoked when they described their experiences that were relevant for the position. And the dimensions of diversity they found that were most identified, not surprisingly, were class, gender, race, and ethnicity, not surprising. Um, and, you know, for this diversity fellow pos uh, position, applicants, you know, discuss these issues in very complex ways. But the next most often uh, mentioned categories included communication style or personality um, and geography. And there were many, many other characters, uh, characteristics mentioned. Um, this is a good reminder that diversity is a very ambiguous concept, can be interpreted in many different ways, even in the academic literature, especially if we're interested in groups. People study all kinds of diversity dimensions that may be relevant. Even affective diversity is something organizational sociologists are looking at these days. So this sort of underscores my earlier point that its use in job searches should be carefully framed in terms of what, in fact, is being sought. So universities with broad and inclusive diversity definitions should look for um, 
applicants that explain their facility with a variety of dimensions, whereas others may seek more narrowly drawn uh, diversity criteria. And then my last point, which I think I'm running out of time, so I, I won't say much about it, has to do with the relationship between diversity qualifications and faculty uh, diversity. And I think we've already heard um, uh, from, from Jeff and others that um, having diversity qualifications in statements uh, for job applications um, does make a difference. And there is a, a study by Turner uh, Smith et al. in Journal of Higher Education that found the same thing, that these statements do make a difference. And so they are definitely something that we should be uh, paying attention to. Thank you. All right, thank you. That, those were three, three great talks, um, gave us a lot of food for thought. At this point, we want to open it up into a discussion. Um, and if people want to come up to the microphone and uh, start off the discussion, that would be great. Sure. Hi, Elizabeth Ozer from University of California, San Francisco. Thank you for those really great presentations. Um, I had a question for Amy Wharton. Um, when you talk about this as being required, can you talk a little bit about, does this mean that actually no or anyone who didn't have this. So I want to know sort of how do they work with that a little bit? Um, yeah, it, it means that, I mean, the first cut in terms of applications would be, do you provide this, do you respond to this, this um, qualification? And if you didn't, theoretically, no, you wouldn't be advanced. As I said, you know, when we first put this into practice, we found that not all fac prospective faculty were um, addressing this, and that's when our couple search committees went back. But no, they would have to they would have to address it to advance in the search. Not necessarily all of the same quality, but they would have to address it. Hi, my name is Adam Bergasser. I'm in the Department of Physics here at UC San Diego. I'm the chair of the diversity committee in my department. I'm also the chair of the committee on the status of minorities in astronomy in the American Astronomical Society. Um, I had a couple of, I wanted to maybe give a perspective from the trenches, uh, from what's happened in the last few years uh, in my department. Um, I came onto campus, uh, actually came back because I was undergraduate here. I came onto campus uh, about a month before the Compton Cookout incident. Uh, and uh, I was very excited afterwards to hear that we were going to, uh, that the university was making commitment to increase the diversity of the faculty. Um, however, one of the issues that came up with physics is that when, uh, so as Jeff described, that the sort of first round of this iteration was to sort of hand out these positions and divided by the deans. And at, at the time, we had three positions handed to the division, uh, and chemistry, I think, got two, math got one, and physics got zero. Um, so there was a lack of transparency on how that was uh, sort of doled out. Um, I should say that as a department, uh, certainly as a field, we're very uh, our, our fractions of women and minorities are very low. As a department, we are one of the least diverse physics departments uh, in the UC system, and there is a single African-American physicist in the UC system. So it was very shocking to us that we wouldn't be targeted as a as a, a group to to uh, to have a uh, some effort to increase that diversity, uh, and at the time, myself and another junior faculty member were the the only two really pushing uh, for this, and so we actually uh, managed to to try to put together a proposal for uh, for Suresh here. Um, and the fact that it was the two most junior faculty in the department trying to do this made it very difficult uh, for us. So, um, so one of the comments I want to make is that if if the effort is to 
really broadly increase diversity across campus. The, I, you know, the, the way that these positions are defined should be, you know, thought about more clearly and more transparently. So I'm very happy that the sort of these current rounds are a little bit more uh, transparent. Um, the other comment I want to make is that uh, as, and I want to emphasize Jeff's point at the end that, uh, last year we, we had an uh, excellence hire. Um, we had five women on, uh, on our short list. Every single one of them had an academic partner. Every single one of them, we had an issue getting here because uh, the partner also needed a, a hiring position. And so particularly if you're looking at, at increasing the number of women in the sciences or any field, uh, that is an issue that needs to be addressed, defined, decoupled uh, from the position itself so that uh, we can actually hire those uh, those people in if, if they're candidates, whether they're excellence candidates or just normal candidates. Um, and then one last com- comment I'll make just from the physics department, uh, there is a sense among my colleagues that these excellence positions uh, can uh, rule us out for future faculty hires in, quote, research positions. Um, and so I think uh, a, a little bit clarity in, you know, how if we manage to get an excellence fa- faculty candidate, are we now shutting ourselves off from other uh, potential future hires? Uh, I think a little clarity on that is also important. So it, mostly it's just in terms of transparency and clarity in how these positions. So I, I don't know if you want to comment on that, Jeff. Sorry, I put you on the hot spot. No, one, <laughs> one comment is, is the positions you were talking about were not diversity positions. So... This is part, there was no confusion on that part. But uh, I think this issue uh, the faculty worry about, which, which is, is legitimate, you know, if, if you hire somebody in one of these excellence positions, will it count against you in the future? The answer is, of course it's going to count against you in the future at some point, right, in the sense that, you know, we all look at how many faculty there are and, and how many students you have, and, you know, this makes a difference. Having said that, one of the reasons that we went to these, these uh, open positions across the division was we wanted other we wanted um, faculty in in various fields to have opportunities to hire where they might not get them. So there might have been a targeted thing in physical chemistry that year, and maybe in that small pool in that particular year there weren't any great candidates, right? But it's certainly not true across all of chemistry, and it's certainly not true across all of physics or mathematics. So. Part of the reason we went to the open system was to say, don't tell us that you can't find any candidates, because it's just not true. I mean, and I want to emphasize again, the candidates that we saw that finally came up to our committee were just absolutely first rate. Unfortunately, they were very expensive, and there were a lot of two-body problems, and and as Adam was saying, we lost some. Um, And, you know, I want to thank Suresh for actually, uh, our EBC, for actually stepping to the plate and helping us. We got two Hispanic couple that was one in physics and one in chemistry. Um, But, you know, those sort of two-body problems are are really important, and, you know, they're a difficult thing to deal with. Um, And, you know, but they're going to, we have to figure out ways to strategize to make those sorts of things happen. Hi, um, I'm Anna Everett, UC Santa Barbara. I had uh, one question and a comment. Uh, the question is, will these slides be available for, will the PowerPoints be available for those of us who are taking copious notes? <laughs> uh, and great. And the other, uh, the, the comment is, I am really uh, impressed by and heartened by some of the um, uh, uh, proactive decisions that are being made and actions that are being taken around increasing diversity. I am especially 
really intrigued by this idea of excellence hires. Um, and I also love the way um, Olivia is singled out or um, celebrated for being a, um, a superstar. Uh, I, I have a concern, however, about when we say excellence hires, it is a double-edged sword because it still has some kind of stigma, perhaps. And so I think one of the things we were talking about, how um, people are often unaware of their um, unconscious biases, but there are also people who have conscious biases, and uh, they need to be addressed because... <laughs> Because, you know, there, there is the attitude that, well, there aren't any brilliant minorities around, because if there were any brilliant minorities around, we would have already identified them and hired them. And, you know, so, I mean, there's a kind of circular logic that's going on. So I think we need to be aware of both things and trying to work at them. So I, um, I found out about this uh, uh, now that I'm on the search committee for this year, this issue of... Uh, people not applying to the excellence diversity position because they want to get hired as real scientists. Um, and I, I found that very surprising. I, I really have a, a lot of my, I'm very oblivious. So I, have, I can tell you that I have never in my life felt discriminated against ever. And I find it hard to believe that it hasn't happened. I just haven't noticed. Uh, and so this is the kind of thing that I don't notice. And so then I'm in the committee and I'm told about this and, I, and I'm thinking, well, okay, I guess we have to change that perception. Uh, but, but how to change it depends on where it's coming from, right? So if you don't know where it's coming from, then you can't do anything about it. And um, I, I personally don't know where it's coming from. And so, you know, it would require some thinking so that we can modify that kind of thinking. But uh, I think that I am personally very proud to have been hired in the excellence diversity, uh, as an excellence diversity hire. I think that is, you know, to me, I feel like it's an honor. I, I am just absolutely thrilled about it. And um, when I was asked to write the diversity statement for the position, I was very happy to do that kind of thing. And I don't think any of my colleagues hold that against me. I think that People were happy to see me hired, uh, and especially in my department because there were some of my old professors, right? They were really pushing for this. And so I wish we could figure out where this is coming from and how to get rid of it. I, I don't have an answer, I, I'm, I'm afraid. Okay. Okay, Mary Lou Leon Science, uh, UC Davis. I had a couple of questions. Number one, is there any data uh, from any of your uh, institutions about um, when people are given an offer and they, they elect not to come, number one. Number two, exit interviews in terms of um, uh, the, the, the unre unrepresented um, populations um, leaving. And number three, is, is there an evaluation of the process from appointment all the way through tenure and promotion from both sides, not only the faculty, but the, 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 the um, review committee, but also from the faculty member? Um, a couple of points here. One, one is that that um, the program in these excellence positions are only a couple of years old, so so the answer is we don't know. Um, the second thing is there are exit interviews, uh, and we have heard the same sort of uh, anecdotal evidence that there are people who don't apply because they don't want to go for these sort of excellence positions. Um, but you know, overall, I think. Uh, 
you heard the chancellor, the, the figures uh, have reflected very well in the last couple of years, but it's still too early to tell, and, and maybe Suresh can say a couple more words about this. I, I wanted to respond. Go ahead, Karen. Okay, yeah. Yes, I'm um, Carol Patton. I'm from the Department of Communication here at UC San Diego. I'm also faculty equity advisor. And um, Jeffrey and I have been in many meetings together, so I have a question um, and, a, and a comment for Olivia also. But um, I think it's worth if you could take a few minutes. You, know, you and I were there at the very beginning when this requirement for um, contribution to diversity statement um, was included in the application process. I think if you could take a few minutes and talk about some of the problems that we had rolling it out, um, some of the pushback from the faculty. I think that would be useful for people in the group thinking about using this, um, this, um, this kind of approach. And then finally, just to follow up with um, Olivia, I've been here for 31 years, and I was hired in a special position, but it was called an affirmative action. Special, it wasn't called a diversity position 31 years ago. So I have a lot of the same feelings that you have. So I just wanted to say that, you know, there's a few of us here in the room. So, um, Jeffrey. Yeah, I'd like to respond a little bit uh, to what Carol said and also uh, some of the topics that have come up. So we've actually evolved. I've been here 32 years. So we used to call these affirmative action positions, targets of opportunity, now excellence uh, uh, in, in diversity. And I'm sensitive to, you know, both sides. So on the one hand, it pains me, and we have to find a solution when, as Olivia said, she's proud of uh, uh, being hired as we're not making any compromises with respect to excellence. When we choose diverse candidates, I say, you know, excellence is number one priority as an academic institution, but I do believe very strongly that diversity can come hand-in-hand hand with that. So... You know, it's a bit. If there's a better way to package it, I'd love to find a way to do that. Uh, so, having said this, the other side of the coin with respect to creating these, uh, you know, special prizes, meaning, you know, it's a freebie. You know, when a department like physics or whoever else, you know, thinks of hiring diversity only as a freebie, I want it to be the the daily way they do business. And so this is the other psychology that we've got to work around with, that it cannot always be an extra added on. And, you know, there has to be the sense of I care enough that if I have one position or two positions, I'm going to invest one. So I'd love to see a plan where, you know, if if uh, we compete, that the department says we'll give one, can you match it to make it two? I can see a, a greater sense of engagement and excitement by doing that sort of thing. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what people have to say about it. So uh, following up with, with that regarding do we know why they don't come or why they leave or these kinds of things, I, I certainly don't know anything about UCSD in terms of why people are coming or going. Uh, but I know about the Latino engineering community across the U.S., and I do because I do follow up with them uh, in terms of uh, why did you not end up at this institution where they're going through the high. We have a program called the Graduate Institute uh, that is run again at the SHIP organization, and um, there we have uh, this whole training program for graduate students to get into academic positions. So we do everything from proposal writing, uh, workshops so that they end up with their career award, you know, proposal 
even before they haven't get into academic positions. Those, those kinds of things, right? All the preparation so they can get into an academic position successfully. And of course, because we have this cadre of students, and you know, n numbers are increasing in terms of the numbers per year. And um, so I follow up with them. Like, so did you interview? And how many places did you interview? And what happened at the interview? So I have those numbers. And I know why they didn't go over here and they ended up going over here, for example. And there's all kinds of stories about why, why, what is happening. From things like, I didn't really feel welcome, which I can imagine that happens to almost everyone at a, an institution that's just not a good fit for them, to they wouldn't hire my wife or my husband. So the two-body problem is big among the Latino community. That happens to be a huge thing. So that's another issue. And then the third one, it, and it happens less and less in, in just a few examples this year of I really felt discriminated against, like really seriously discriminated. So that's happening less and less, and now it's becoming more about family and wife and husband situations and just in general not good fits. And that's sort of what I'm seeing among the Latino community in engineering in, in the last, I would say, three years. Let me um, say a few words to, to Carol's question, which is, um, you know, whenever you mandate something like, <clears throat> like having these diversity statements, of course there's going to be resistance from the faculty. That's, that's obvious. Everybody's going to have a slightly different opinion. Moreover, if you go across fields, you know, in mathematics, there's no, no research areas which are diversity related, whereas in the social science and arts and humanities, there are, and so you have, you have differences among divisions. I think, um, you know, and there's lots of faculty who say, look, this is just a complete waste of time, right? There's, it's useless, and we don't look at those statements, and, you know, I think that is a case of education that you have to do. You have to realize that one of the things that we're trying to do is to try to change the way that we're thinking about diversity and the emphasis on diversity in the institution, and I can say that has changed. I don't think there's any doubt about that, but does everybody you know, buy into this? Of course not. And, you know, you have worries about diversity statements that they be, can, can become like teaching statements, right? We all look at teaching statements, and there is nobody who says, look, I don't care about students, I don't want to do this, <laughs> right? Everybody says, I, you know, I want to communicate, I'm trying to do the best to inspire my students and all that sort of stuff, and it turns out to be somewhat useless because you don't do those sorts of things. So, you know, this is a danger that we have to deal with. We want people to take this seriously, and you have to train committees, and we have to have forums like this to emphasize why this is important. And, you know, this is an education that has to go on for a long time, and, you know, we have to make adjustments as well when things aren't working. So early, early on was that, you know, um, that all the diversity statements that had to be passed on. You had an interim report where the diversity statements were rated, and then people looked at those up in the administration. That's Gene Ferrani did a lot of this work. And it held up some of the searches, and you know people complained and all this sort of stuff, and we figured out better ways to do it. I think you have to think of it as an experiment. You have to adjust to the kinds of things, legitimate concerns that people have. But it's also an education for the faculty, and, and hopefully, as Suresh was saying, that soon we'll be in a position where this is just part of what we do as opposed to anything special. All right, so um, let's thank all of our panelists for an engaging discussion.
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.